0: Welcome to The Word is Resistance. My name is Will Green, and this is a podcast of Showing Up for Racial Justice, or Surge. Specifically, The Word is Resistance is a project of Surge Faith. This is the place where we engage weekly scripture readings through an anti-racist lens. People want to know, what's it even mean to believe in good news, given the forces of racism and white supremacy that are so powerful? And how do the forces of anti-Semitism, anti violence, Islamophobia, ableism, and other forms of oppression impact the way that Christians read the Bible? How do justice-loving people read the Bible in the age of Trump? And what does the Bible have to do with the world we actually want to live in? What's the responsible way to engage with the Christian heritage in this political climate? If these are questions you'd like to explore, then this podcast is for you. It's designed to be a resource for reflection, inspiration, and action for people who are committed to showing up for racial justice. Because this podcast is created by Surge, The primary intended audience for the word is resistance is white people in the United States. We are white people challenging and supporting other white people as we take action to dismantle white supremacy following the leadership of people of color. Of course, we welcome all listeners, and we especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to people of color. To introduce myself, I myself am a white, cisgender, gay, male clergy person, who lives on Wabanaki land in what is now called the state of Maine. I'm a Methodist pastor who serves a congregation. This episode is being recorded in February 2020, and we'll be exploring Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 through 12, which is one of the assigned lectionary texts for Sunday, February 9th, 2020. The music on our podcast is a live recording of a song gifted to the Freedom Movement by Reverend Dr. Vincent Harding called We Are Building Up a New World. The group singing is called No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for choir practice to bring music back into direct action in other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014 and is being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're particularly thankful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll begin with the scripture reading. This is Isaiah chapter 58 verses 1 through 12. Just to set it up, this is an exciting and passionate reading, very in your face. It's, it's confrontational and delivers a message with a confident prophetic spirit. But just a reminder of the obvious, this is very old poetry written in ancient Hebrew, so it's a little tricky, though this is not uh, impenetrable at all. And as I hope you'll be able to understand from my reading, the idea in this passage is that the prophet Isaiah is directly challenging the popular practice of religion of his time. And he's saying that religious people are uh, hypocritical and not right with God when they ignore people who are struggling and suffering. The reading's a dialogue, more or less, that jumps back and forth between different people speaking, but it doesn't always say who's speaking in the text itself. So, for example, at times, Isaiah imagines things that people might ask of God and then imagines how God might respond, but it doesn't say who's talking. Uh, So I'm going to fill in with a few stage directions, if you will, to explain who I think is talking. Obviously, there are lots of ways of interpreting this, but I'll say things like, you know, the people are speaking here, and then I'll say this is supposed to be God's response to the question that the people just asked or that sort of thing. So basically, I'll be adding some context an explanation as I read this. It's not as complicated as I'm making it sound. Here it is, Isaiah 58, 1 through 12. I'll say that it starts with God telling Isaiah to deliver a message. God says, Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. And now imagine God describing I'm interrupting the reading here. Imagine God describing the sinful behavior of the people going on with this. Uh, The reading continues. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. And now this next part some imagined questions that these people might ask of God. So it goes on. This is the people talking, I'm saying. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? And here's God's answer to why God is distant from them, despite their fasting. God says, Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? And the the implied answer to those questions is supposed to be, no, that's not what God wants at all. So now God continues with what sort of fast God does actually want. God says, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked, to cover them, and not to hide yourself with your own kin? Excuse me, not to hide yourself from your own kin. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched lands and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be built. You shall rise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer, the restorer of streets to live in. And here, that's the end of the reading. Amen. So there's some back and forth there. Is You could... I'm sure you got. God tells Isaiah to preach, and then there's this back and forth that characterized the people as not getting it. It says the people are just not getting what God wants them to do, uh, and are just not able to be who God wants them to be, right? I love this passage. God wants the people to end oppression, to stop blaming others, to stop speaking evil, to share their food, to share their housing, to stop pretending they don't see that their own kin are struggling, and to satisfy the needs of the afflicted. This is a classic description of the sorts of things we think of when we think of the word prophetic. It's a clear call for social justice, presenting a stark dichotomy between, uh, you know, the self-righteous people who claim to be religious, and uh, and their horrible ways. You know, they're blaming, they're ignoring, they're continuing to harm the very people who God cares most about, namely people living under oppression or people experiencing affliction. It's a great passage. It gets me all worked up when it comes up in the lectionary. I think, hooray. I can't wait to talk about this. It's so relevant. It's so timely. Uh, it's so clear. I'm glad this is in the Bible. Just saying these words has power. Even I can't wait to to go there with this, with this reading. But then after letting the words work on me and on my, Church friends, after reading this passage in worship or preaching on it, then obviously nothing changes, nothing happens. I mean, maybe we get pumped up and recharged and encouraged when we engage this engage this passage, but in the big picture, not a whole lot changes just because we read Isaiah fifty-eight. I hate to say it, these words are not a magical spell that change reality or that necessarily change us. Many people have been reading these words for many centuries. And yet, here we are. So I wonder why. Uh, Why doesn't reading Isaiah 58 change our lives? Why do we not change our hearts and our lives when confronted with this passage? Well, in the setting I know best, liberal, white, mainline Christianity, I think one big reason these words don't change us is because of how we've learned to hear the words, how we've chosen to interpret the words. I've observed over the years that when we read this passage, Isaiah 58, or passages like it, people often hear a different message that isn't there. And I want to explore that a little bit. For example, in Bible study, when we read uh, Isaiah 58, people will sometimes summarize the passage like this. They'll say something along the lines of, well, the problem was that the people Isaiah spoke to didn't internalize God's word. They never changed their hearts. They didn't get the spiritual message, so their religion became formulaic became formulaic. Their religion was just about outward signs, not about inward truths. You know, they said prayers but didn't really mean them. They performed sacrifices but didn't want things to change in their hearts. Okay, I've learned that this is a very common interpretation, and I actually Completely disagree with this interpretation. I completely disagree with the idea that the problem was that the people weren't spiritually open or that their hearts were closed to God's true message and they weren't really into their religion. The big reason I disagree that this is what the passage says is because the passage doesn't say that. It's so easy for us to assume this that we might miss that what Isaiah actually says is that the people we actually quite into their religion. Did you notice in the reading that the people actually do enjoy worship? They're not going through the motions. It makes them happy. They don't feel conflicted at all. They feel confident that they're right with God because they feel wonderful about turning to God. There's no internal conflict for the worshipers. Everything is just fine according to them. Did you notice in verse 2 that it said, quote, Day after day, they seek me and delight to know my ways. These unjust people. The people's delight is mentioned twice in verse 2. God says they delight to know my ways. And then later, they delight to draw near to God. I think these worshipers were very sincere. I think they were genuinely trying to live out the spirit of the message they received. And I think the way they lived out their religion delighted them, just like it says. They were happy to live the way they were living. Now, stepping away from the Isaiah passage and being self-reflective for a moment, I know it's very tempting for me personally to think that people who are politically or socially opposed to me are hypocrites because they know they're in the wrong, and if they looked deep within, they'd see they're wrong and I'm right. Uh, you know what phrase I really hate? I really hate the phrase intellectually dishonest. You know when people say it, it's intellectually dishonest for people to disagree with me. I don't know about that. I mean, I think most of the time the phrase just means someone's frustrated that people disagree with them. People who are opposed to me are not necessarily intellectually dishonest. Now, I know, I know some are. I'm very clear that Donald Trump lies. I got that. I knew that even before he was president. He's a very bad example. But leaving extreme examples aside, I, th- I think a lot of people who are politically or socially opposed to me are actually quite content with their own behavior and with the way things are and with the people that they are. Now, it's hard to understand for me how anyone could not want to align with me and my beliefs. But people who don't are sometimes quite happy sometimes quite full of delight, even if it's really obvious to me that they're being morally inconsistent, uh, living the way they do might give them lots of delight. And maybe there's a similar thing going on here in this passage from Isaiah. Maybe the people Isaiah is addressing are people who feel like they're doing just fine with their lives, with their religion, with their life before God, with how they live out their values. It might make them happy. And give them delight to do what they're doing. I mean, that is what it says. (laughs) The way they do religion and the way they see themselves in relationship to God makes them delight. Weird, but true. So this is the first reason I'd encourage us to avoid an interpretation that focuses on uh, the hearts of the people. As if they're somehow not being true to their own hearts deep down. It doesn't say that's the case. It says, no, they're happy. And being this way gives them delight. Uh, but I have another reason to avoid this common interpretation that says uh, that says the people in you know, Isaiah fifty eight were focused on the outer forms of religion but not practicing a, a good religion of the heart. And my additional reason for avoiding this type of interpretation is that this duality between phony outward forms of religion and uh, it, it, the duality between outward forms of religion and secret virtues in the heart. I think this duality is a xenophobic trope often used against people who are seen as different. Now, as a lifelong Protestant, I know that this is how my own people used to describe Catholicism to me when I was a kid. They said, well, those people just go through the motions. You know, they do all this stuff on the outside for show, but they don't really believe it. We really believe what we believe, but they're just... They're just... Uh, interested in doing this outward stuff. You know, it's just a way, a bad way of describing difference. Do you hear what I'm saying? It also sounds like that anti-Jewish thing that Christians do when we we say about people who haven't uh, accepted Jesus in their hearts, right? Now, obviously, uh, this isn't uh, the intent of people who adopt this sort of common interpretation of Isaiah 58. You know, it's not that people are trying to be people who say that, well, in Isaiah 58 it was really a matter of people not being right in their hearts. You know, in Isaiah 58 it was just outward forms. Those people aren't trying to be anti-Jewish or anti-Catholic or anti- um, other. But even if it isn't our intent, we should be be very aware of when we're using anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic arguments to interpret the Bible. And saying that people Uh, who, you know, just go through the motions of religion without being reformed in their hearts. That's an anti-Jewish argument that Christians have been making for a long time. So we should be aware of this. Warning bells should go off whenever contemporary Christians start talking about how we're saved by what's really in our heart. You know, the power of the spirit to overcome the routine obligations that appear on the outside. Even if we don't intend it as such, often used as an anti-Jewish argument or an anti-Catholic argument. Or an anti-them argument, and we apply it to Isaiah fifty-eight. You know, this is where our prejudice comes from through how we read scripture. Now, there, there's one other big thing I want to say about uh, falling into the trap of thinking that passages like Isaiah fifty-eight are really about what's on the inside and how that's what counts. And uh, this comes. This last idea comes from. The author Robin D'Angelo, who refers uh, in her writings on anti-racism, on fighting racism, she talks about the idea of the good-bad binary in uh, the good-bad binary in white understandings of racism. She explains in her 2019 book called uh, "White Fragility." The subtitle is um, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. In that book, she argues that after the civil rights movement in the United States, the way white people superficially related to racism changed because it started to become socially unacceptable in more settings for white people to be seen or labeled as racist. Basically, she says that racist started becoming a bad word uh, during the 1960s after white people started seeing televised violent attacks against black people. And she writes uh, that racism was, quote, reduced to simple, isolated, and extreme acts of prejudice. These acts must be intentional, malicious, and based on conscious dislike of someone because of race. The good-bad binary allowed white people to define racism as just that. Simple, isolated, extreme acts of prejudice. Things that are intentional, malicious, and based on conscious dislike of someone because of race. So rather than being critical of whiteness, white people started being invested in merely avoiding the word or the label Racist, because racism was seen as, quote, bad. So rather than changing behavior, the game started being proving that you're a good person. Rather than transforming social structures or deeply interrogating their own relationship to white supremacy, it became easier for white people to simply try to appear, quote, good. Thus, the good bad binary of racism was established, which says good people are not racist, racists are bad people. This is a pretty easy problem to solve, isn't it? Be a good person, then you're not racist. If you don't want to appear racist, all, we, all white people have to do is prove that we are good people. And Robin DiAngelo says that the good-bad binary shuts us down to change and to self-reflection. Because right away we go to this thing that says, Oh, racism is bad, I'm good, therefore I'm not racist, I'm good. Makes people reflexively defend their reputation rather than engaging in the deep work of self-awareness and systemic change. The good-bad binary shuts us down to working on change within ourselves and within our world. White people can just tell ourselves that we have good hearts. This sounds familiar, right? So we can defend horrible actions, horrible words, horrible violence, by saying you know, that the perpetrators of those things don't really have a racist heart, right? Or, you know, if you really knew them, you'd know they don't have a racist bone in their body. We hear this this line all the time. Okay, can you tell how I'm going to relate this to Isaiah 58? When we read Isaiah 58, we turn, sometimes with this common understanding I'm saying, this surface-level reading, um, this bad interpretation, and when we read Isaiah 58, we turn the people who do horrible things to oppressed people, we turn them into, you know, merely people whose hearts are not in the right place, right? I think that sort of an approach to Isaiah 58 makes us more tolerant of oppression, injustice, and evil. It's a real danger. When we read this passage, it's easy for for people to say that the problem, you know, is some interior spiritual problem instead of a political, economic, social problem. The you know, the evil was that They were oppressing people. That's what Isaiah says. The the, the problem was they were not sharing food, not sharing resources. They were pretending they didn't know about the harm that was happening around them, uh, which they could have intervened in. The evil was not that they were intellectually dishonest. God is pissed off at them, in fact, because they were happy, content, satisfied, feeling really good about their religion while actually complicit in doing harm to others. This very pattern that I see in Isaiah 58, repeats itself through white supremacy. Whiteness harms people. It's a form of violence that denies resources, opportunities, food, money, other things that everyone has a right to. White supremacy keeps an awful lot of white people very happy. Their hearts are just fine. They sleep well at night. A lot of the time there is no internal spiritual conflict. People like their religion, too. You know, maybe the problem isn't on the inside, but on the outside. Maybe the problem isn't that they're, you know, that they're bad people. Maybe the problem is how easy it is for us to think of ourselves as good people. The answer is not spiritual. The answer is political, embodied, economic, material, concrete, all all those words. Uh, maybe we need to stop our religious practices even if they make us feel good. Instead, we have to live differently. Live differently. This is a fundamental message of Isaiah 58. Not change your heart, not be more spiritual. I think live differently is a message, you know, obviously I'm saying it way too simply, but Live differently is a message that white people need to be confronted with. Uh, I'm a white person. That means I need to change, to live differently. Living differently, that's what leads to healing. Now, of course, we have a lot of spiritual work to do. I know I have spiritual work to do. I'm not anti-spiritual. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian pastor who prays and reads the Bible and fasts and go to I can, I can go right down the list. I do it all. Uh, but every now and then, uh, when returning to passages like Isaiah fifty-eight, and I read a passage like this that says, uh, "Your religion is bullshit." It's a quote from God. You know, one of the <laughs> one of the first responses we have to is that we tell ourselves, "Well, it's because we're not really spiritual or religious." I don't think so. Sometimes the problem is exactly what it seems. The problem with white supremacy is whiteness itself, right? The problem with racism is racism. The problem with oppression is the oppression part. The problem with pretending things aren't problems is pretending things aren't problems. So I'll end with what it says in, in verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah 58. At some point, it is time to remove the yoke of oppression. At some point, it's, it's time to stop the pointing of the finger At some point, it's time to abolish the speaking of evil. And only then will we be repairers of the breach and restorers of streets to live in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for letting me share. Uh, This is important. We need white people to be committing to anti-racist work and to undermining white supremacy in 2020. And that's what showing up for racial justice is all about. That's why at the end of this episode, I'm asking you to make a donation to Surge. It's a wonderful way to act on our commitment to getting white folks on board for dismantling white supremacy. You can donate online uh, on our podcast page at showingupforracialjustice.org. Uh, find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. Uh, thanks for helping support this podcast and for organizing white people to show up for racial justice and the new world we're building together. Our podcast lives at SoundCloud. You can also find us on Stitcher. Just search the word as resistance transcripts are available on our website our sound engineer is maxwell pearl thank you max for making this podcast possible next week on the word is resistance we'll hear from claire brown that will be awesome something to look forward to peace and power to all of you in our work together i'm grateful to be in this movement with you